Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. My name is Rebecca Larson, and you are listening to episode, well, there isn't an episode number, so we'll just call it Catherine of Aragon, first wife of Henry VIII. Before we get started, I'd like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who have been with me from the beginning and been such a great support to me. You guys rock. But today, I'd like to give a special thanks to my newest patron, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. In addition to the monthly donation on Patreon, there is also the option to do a one-time donation via PayPal. This is something I recently set up for those who would like to donate a little or a lot in one transaction. All the one-time donations and Patreon memberships go toward costs involved with creating my website, podcast, and research materials. With that, a special thank you to my newest contributors through my PayPal one-time donation section. Wendy, Kat, Kathy, Sue Ellen, and Amanda, who have now become members of my exclusively awesome gang and were kind enough to make a generous donation to help me pay those costs mentioned previously. Because of followers like all of you, I am able to continue doing what I love without breaking the bank. So thank you again. All right, let's get going on the topic for this podcast, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile. She was named after her great-grandmother, Catherine of Lancaster, who was the daughter of the well-known John of Gaunt and Constance of Castile. If you're not familiar with John of Gaunt, he was the son of King Edward III of England, the king with many sons who eventually caused the Wars of the Roses fiasco. But that's a whole other story. During her upbringing, Catherine was well-educated. She was an avid reader and was trained in needlework, dancing, lace-making, and embroidery in the blackwork style. This style of embroidery was made popular by Catherine in England. Catherine loved and respected her mother, Isabella. She grew up to be much like her in looks and character. Isabella was able to turn a blind eye to Ferdinand's many infidelities, as did her daughter years later with her second husband, Henry VIII. Like her mother, Catherine also had a great sense of fashion. When Catherine came to England in 1501, it was on the heels of the execution of Perkin Warbeck and Edward, Earl of Warwick. Her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, did not wish to send their beloved daughter to a country whose ruler could be removed and their daughter left empty-handed. That is what was going on in England at the time. Warbeck and Warwick were both threats to the throne of Henry VII. Some English subjects believe that either of those men deserved to wear the crown over Henry VII because of their Plantagenet, or House of York, lineage. Warbeck claimed to be the son of Edward IV, and Warwick was the son of George, Duke of Clarence, brother to King Edward IV and Richard III. 
Now, when Richard III assumed the role of King of England after the disappearance of the princes in the tower, many suspected that he was responsible for their disappearance because he had the most to gain from it. Now, while I also agree with that statement, we honestly may never know what happened to Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, during their stay in the tower, but the fact that Richard III had the marriage between his brother King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville declared unlawful and invalid because of a previous secret wedding Edward had with Eleanor Butler, which then by right made him next in line to the throne, one could see that this is something that he desired. While he never showed this desire while Edward IV, his brother, was on the throne, unlike his brother the Duke of Clarence, it's not unusual for him to wish to be king if he believed it was his right. So. This is the mess, with an abbreviated backstory that was going on in England at the time of the marriage negotiations with Henry VII and the parents of Catherine of Aragon. I've often thought that Catherine, in her pious ways, may have felt guilty for the execution of Warbeck and Warwick, because it appears that they only happened because otherwise Fernet and Isabella would not send their daughter to England. I'd be curious to hear what you think about that. Did Catherine feel guilty or have remorse for the death of these young men? Especially Warwick, since he was the first cousin to her new mother-in-law, Elizabeth of York, whom she was very close to. Now, when Catherine married Arthur, Prince of Wales, their marriage was very short-lived. After being sent to Ludlow after their wedding, Arthur and Catherine both became ill, but Arthur would not survive. Arthur had been ill or sickly, for many years, and some have suggested that their marriage was not consummated, even though the morning after the wedding, he had boasted that he had spent the night in Spain. Whether or not they did or didn't is one of the main questions you hear. The question that always comes back into my head is why did Henry want to get the papal dispensation before marrying his brother's wife? Is that the only reason why? Because he was marrying his brother's wife? Surely, there was more reason than the fact that she was his sister-in-law, or was it because of the chance that the marriage was consummated? Next, we must consider how pious Catherine was. Would she condemn her immortal soul just to ensure she was still queen or to prove Henry wrong? Probably not. But would she lie to keep her daughter, Princess Mary, in favor? That is likely. As a parent, I know a person will do anything to protect their child. Anything. Plus, we don't know if she confessed to a priest on her deathbed. Some can say that it was never reported that she did. But honestly, if the priest was loyal to her and it was her confession, then it was private and he could not repeat it. I was raised Catholic, so I know that much. I recently posted this question on Facebook and Twitter pages. And the results are in, and we still don't know. (laughs) As usual, the masses are torn. On the Facebook page, Heather mentioned Margaret Beaufort being in charge of the court of Henry VII at the time, and she would have made sure that things were done properly. This is a very interesting point that you do not hear often, and I question if that's because Margaret died in 1509 after Catherine married Henry. She was not available to testify and had not left behind anything to indicate that her grandson Arthur had consummated his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. So, while the idea Margaret Beaufort made sure the deed was done is just that, an idea. There is no evidence to suggest one way or another, so we must set that idea aside. 
While reading Sarah Gristwood's newest book, Game of Queens, she discusses two different debates regarding Henry VIII's concern with his first marriage. In the book of Leviticus, the Bible says, If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. Thy shall be childless. In Henry's mind, this meant not without child, but without male heir. Clearly, he interpreted he interpreted things the way that would benefit himself. However, in the book of Deuteronomy, it contradicts Leviticus, saying that a man has a duty to marry his deceased brother's widow and to raise up seed for his brother. So, which is it? Was Henry supposed to marry his brother's widow? Or wasn't he? The ultimate question was whether or not Catherine of Aragon and Arthur, Prince of Wales, had consummated their marriage. When the papal legates, Compagio and Wolsey, visited Catherine and tried to convince her to join a nunnery, she refused. They told the Pope, although she is very religious and extremely patient, she will not accede in the least. Catherine swore in her conscience that she and Prince Arthur had never consummated their marriage and declared that she intended to live and die in the estate of matrimony to which God had called her. Cardinal Compagio attempted to sway the queen, but she would not listen. Wolsey warned her to yield to the king's displeasure. She snapped at him, saying, Of this trouble I thank only you, my lord of York. Of malice you have kindled this fire, especially for the great grudge you bear to my nephew the emperor, because he would not gratify your ambition by making you pope by force. Wolsey then went on to excuse himself. He stated that it had been sore against his will that ever the marriage should be in question, and he promised, as legate for the Pope, to be impartial. Catherine did not believe him, as she knew Wolsey to be the closest advisor to the king. On the 26th of October, 1528, by her request, Compagio heard Catherine's confession. She declared, upon the salvation of her soul, that she had never been carnally known by Prince Arthur. Compagio believed she was speaking the truth, but continued to push for her to go to a nunnery. At the peak of the king's great matter, Catherine of Aragon made the speech of her life on the 21st of June, 1529. Catherine the Queen gave the speech of her life, on her knees, before Henry VIII and the rest of those present at the hearing. She had been quoted as saying, Sir, I beseech you for all the love that hath been between us, and for the love of God, let me have justice and right. Take of me some pity and compassion, for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have here no assured friend, and much less indifferent counsel. I flee to you as to the head of justice within this realm. Alas, sir, wherein have I offended you, or what occasion of displeasure have I designed against your will and pleasure? Intending, as I perceive, to put me from you, I take God and all the world to witness that I have been to you a true and humble wife, ever conformable to your will and pleasure, that never said or did anything to the contrary, thereof being always well pleased and contented with all things wherein ye had any delight or dalliance. Whether it were in a little or much, I never grudged in a word or countenance, or showed a visage or spark of discontention. I loved all those who he loved only for your sake, whether I had cause or no, and whether they were my friends or enemies. 
This twenty years I have been your true wife or more, and by me ye ye have had divers children, although it hath pleased God to call them out of this world, which hath been no default in me. And when ye had me at first, I take God to be my judge, that I was a true maid without touch of man, and whether it be true or no, I put it to your conscience. If there be any just cause by the law that ye can allege against me, either of dishonesty or any other impediment, to banish and put me from you, I am well content to depart to my great shame and dishonor, and if there be none, then here I most lowly beseech you to let me remain in your former estate and receive justice at your princely hand. The king your father was in the time of his reign of such estimation through the world for his excellent wisdom that he was accounted and called of all men the second Solomon. And my father Ferdinand, king of Spain, who was esteemed to be one of the wittiest princes that reigned in Spain many years before, were both wise and excellent kings in wisdom and princely behavior. It is not therefore to be doubted, but that they were elected and gathered as wise counselors about them, as to their high discretions was thought meet. Also, as me seemeth, there was in those days as wise, as well learned men, and men of good judgment, as be present in both realms, who thought then the marriage between you and me good and lawful. Therefore it is a wonder what new inventions are now invented against me, that never intended but honesty, and cause me to stand to the order and judgment of this new court, wherein ye may do me much wrong, if ye intend any cruelty." For ye may condemn me for lack of sufficient answer, having no indifferent counsel, but such as me be assigned me, with whose wisdom and learning I am not acquainted. Ye must consider that they cannot be indifferent counsels for my part which be your subjects, and taken out of your own counsel before, wherein they be made privy, and dare not for your displeasure disobey your will and intent, being once made privy thereto. Therefore I humbly require you, in the way of charity and for the love of God, who is the just judge, to spare the extremity of this new court, until I may be advertised that what way and orders my friends in Spain will advise me to take. And if ye will not extend to me so much indifferent favor, your pleasure then be fulfilled, and to God I commit my case." In 1531, Catherine was still declaring herself Henry's true wife. Henry was attempting to force Catherine to sign his act of supremacy. She refused, stating that the Pope was the only true sovereign and vicar of God. She went on to say, I love and have loved my lord the king as much as any woman can love a man, but I would not have borne him company as his wife for one moment against the voice of my conscience. I am his true wife. Around 1532, when Henry VIII requested Catherine of Aragon return her jewels to the crown, she fell ill soon after. To be quite honest, Catherine was already ill. She had made a request to see her good friend, the imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis. The ambassador, wanting to follow court rules, requested permission from the king to see Catherine at Kimbolton. The Chronicle reported Henry VIII saying, Yes, ambassador, you have my permission. I will send you word when you can go. Henry did not send word. Chapuis requested leave many times and yet received no word from the king. 
Eventually, Chapui sent word to the king that he was leaving. He was tired of waiting. If while on the road he received a word from the king of England, he would surely obey it. On his way out of London, Chapui gathered as many Spanish merchants as he could that would accompany him to Kimbolton. There were nearly a hundred horses in his company. The spirit of the group was high, and they were very happy and excited to visit Catherine, their queen. Once again, Henry received the message from the imperial ambassador, and he was determined to not allow him to see Catherine. He understood the danger of having the ambassador speaking to the wife he had thrown aside. The king sent a man by the name of Thomas, ahead of Chapui, to arrive at Kimbolton in advance to send the message that Chapui was not permitted to visit the queen. While Chapui was slowly traveling to the castle, he saw this man, Thomas, pass him on the road. Chapui seemed to understand what the man's mission was and had one of his servants follow him to confirm his suspicions. Catherine was aware that her friend the ambassador would soon arrive with such great company that when she received word he could not enter, it devastated her. I can only imagine how lonely she was for a familiar face and a friendly one at that. Chapui was ordered to stay four miles from the castle. Why four miles? I assume that's where they were stopped from their forward progress? That evening, Catherine sent food and wine to her Spanish friends and begged them to have good cheer. It was that night that the Spaniards told Chapui that only he was allowed to see Catherine, not them. They informed him that they intended to continue to Kimbolton, which they did. The next morning, about 30 men began their adventure to see the queen. With them, they brought what seems to have been the ambassador's fool, or a fool nonetheless. This man was dressed as a fool and had a padlock hanging from his hood. When the men arrived at Kimbolton, they rested for a bit until they saw ladies in the window. That is, when the fool decided that he had to get to the ladies immediately. Being the fool he was, he started toward the moat, getting into the water and there was a great concern from the other men in the party that he would drown. When the men pulled the fool out of the moat, they removed his padlock and threw it at the window with the ladies. They yelled at the ladies the next time that they would bring them the key. The padlock did not make it to the window, but fell to the earth on the side of the moat. Some of the castle service servants saw where the padlock had fallen and immediately went to grab it. They assumed that it had a note within it for Catherine. They immediately sent it to the king to be examined, and no note or letter was found. In the meantime, back at the castle, the Spaniards had approached the gate and were welcomed inside. Catherine's ladies were sent to greet them, and they were fed a great breakfast in the lower hall. While the men were having breakfast, the fool decided to visit the castle barber for a problem he was having. He made signs to the barber that indicated that he may have a toothache. The barber took pity on the man and wanted to help him. He sat the fool down and attempted to stick his fingers in his mouth to see what the problem was. This must have caused pain to the fool because he clenched his teeth and screamed out in pain. At the same time, the poor barber also screamed in pain for having his fingers bitten. The ruckus that ensued aroused the attention of others having breakfast, so much so that they came to see what the problem was. When they discovered it to be the fool, they all had a good laugh. They then returned to finish their breakfast before leaving the castle. When the men returned to Chapui, they told him the stories of what had happened and all had a great laugh about it. They then returned to London. Nothing more is mentioned by the chronicler of what had been discussed or if the, t or if the queen was present. 
Now we scoot forward a little bit to 1534. At this time, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn had been married, and it was a year after the birth of Princess Elizabeth. King Henry had demanded that Mary take the oath to the act of succession, which meant that her parents were never married and she was illegitimate. Mary had refused this request and was understandably fearful of someone trying to harm her because of it. Henry's retribution was to not allow the person most important to her, her mother, to see her. In addition, he dismissed her household and placed her in the care of Lady Anne Shelton, who was the aunt of her enemy, Anne Boleyn. Needing advice on what she should do, Mary reached out to her mother. This is the letter that Catherine wrote to her daughter. Catherine recommends to Mary to follow her own strategy. Obey Henry in all things except those which would offend God. The mother and daughter team of Catherine and Mary did not make things easy for Anne and Henry. They fought tooth and nail to keep what was rightfully theirs. In April 1534, here is the letter that Catherine wrote to Mary. Daughter, I heard such tidings today that I do perceive, if it be true, the time is come to Almighty God will prove you, and I am very glad for it, for I trust he doth handle you with a good love. I beseech you, agree of his pleasure with a merry heart, and be sure that without fail he will not suffer you to perish if you beware to offend him. I pray you, good daughter, to offer yourself to him. If any pangs come to you, shrive yourself. First make you clean, take heed of his commandments, and keep them as near as he will give you grace to do. For then you are sure armed. And if this lady, Anne Shelton, do come to you as it is spoken, if she do bring you a letter from the king, I am sure in the selfsame letter you shall be commanded what you shall do. Answer with few words, obeying the king your father in everything, save only that you will not offend God and lose your own soul, and go no further without learning and disputation in the matter. And wheresoever and in whatsoever company you shall come, observe the king's commandments, speak your few words and meddle nothing. I will send you two books in Latin. The one shall be Davida Christi, with the Declaration of the Gospels, and the other Epistles of St. Jerome, that he did write to Paul and Eustachium, and in them I trust you shall see good things, and sometimes for your recreation use your virginals or loot if you have any. But one thing I especially desire you, for the love that you do owe unto God and unto me, to keep your heart with a chaste mind and your body from all ill and wanton company, not thinking or desire any husband for Christ's passion, neither determine yourself to any manner of living till this troublesome time be past. For I dare make sure that you shall see a very good end, and better than you can desire. I would, God, good daughter, that you know how good a heart I do write this letter unto you. I never did one with a better, for I perceive very well that God loveth you. I beseech him of his goodness to continue, and if it fortune that you shall have nobody with you of your acquaintance, then I think it best that you keep your keys yourself, for howsoever it is, so shall be done as shall please them. And now you shall begin, and by likelihood I shall follow. I set not a rush by it, for when they have come the uttermost they can, then I am sure of the amendment. I pray you recommend me unto my good lady of Salisbury, and pray her to have a good heart, for we never come to the kingdom of heaven, but by troubles. Daughter, whatsoever you come, take no pain to send unto me, for if I may, I will send to you. 
your loving mother, Catherine the Queen. And now we're going to fast forward even a little bit more to the end of 1535 um, and January 1536. The king informed the imperial ambassador that Catherine was very ill and soon to die. He gave him permission to see her. Chapuis arrived at Kimbolton on New Year's Eve, 1535. Catherine was very pleased to see her great friend that she did not want him to leave. Every time he attempted to leave, she would ask him to stay. Catherine's spirits seemed to improve. The chronicle also suggested that the fool had also accompanied Chapuis on this trip and was there to amuse Catherine. It is noted that she enjoyed his company. It appears that Chapuis left after Catherine's doctor assured him that she was better and he need not fear to leave her. She died on the 7th of January, 1536, shortly after, and it is believed that Chapuis was in London at the time of her death. Maria de Salinas was one of Catherine of Aragon's most important ladies-in-waiting. She came with her from Spain in 1501 when Catherine married Arthur and stayed with her until Henry VIII no longer allowed her to serve her disobedient queen. In December 1535, Maria heard that her dear friend Catherine was near death. She had desperately wanted to be with her, but it was impossible to see her without permission from the king. Maria wrote to Secretary Cromwell to plead her case and appealed to him for permission to see Catherine. Master Secretary, in as lowly manner as I can, heartily I recommend me unto you. And thus it is I forbone you all the same while, for my servant brought me word, when I sent him to you, that you were in such importune business that you could neither dispatch me nor no other body. And now, Mr. Secretary, need driveth me to put you to pain, for I heard say that my mistress is very sore sick again. Wherefore, good Mr. Secretary, I pray you remember me of your goodness, for you did promise me to labor the king's grace to get me license to go to her grace, afore God send for her. For, as I am informed, there is no other likelihood, but it shall be shortly. And if it be that the king's grace of his goodness be content that I shall go thither, without I have a letter of his grace, or else of you, to show the officers of my mistress's house, that his grace is content with me going, else my license shall stand to none effect. And as touching that, there is nobody that can help me so well as you, Mr. Secretary. Under God and the King, all my trust is in you. I pray you remember me now, at this time, and so Jesus have you in his keeping. Maria never received license from the King for entrance, but was somehow able to convince them to admit her to the Queen anyway. The next day, Catherine of Aragon died, with her dear lifelong friend by her side. So here we are at the end of her story. But it's not really the end, because we are still talking about her nearly 500 years later. In the Catherine versus Anne story, there is no clear winner. Both women died without the love of their husband, and both women had daughters who became queens of England. Thank you so much for joining me today for my Tudor's Dynasty podcast. If you have feedback or questions regarding this episode, feel free to contact me via my website at tutorsdynasty.com and click on contact. Or you can send me a message on my Facebook page called Tutor's Dynasty or on Twitter with my handle is at Tutor's Weekly. Thank you again.